What a privilege it is for me to be here. I, I have heard about what God is doing here in, in Kingsburg. And, of course, I know Scott Artavanis has been a, a, such an encourager uh, to me every time I'm with him. And he's just Mr. Positive and upbeat. And, um, and so now to see where you serve the Lord, Scott, is a, a wonderful um, uh, insight and privilege for me. And Dominic has taken care of me last night, and, and um, in fact, I, I got here, if you can believe this, Scott, I left my Bible back in Los Angeles, so I just panicked, and I, I thought I'd left my notes, and I was so happy to eventually find them. So, all that's to say is I'm happy to be here, glad that you're here, and I thank God for what He's doing in this church. I want you to take your Bible. And turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 14, and I want to talk to you on counting the cost. I want to talk to you about the cost of discipleship. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 25 to 27, and then tonight, and I really hope that you can be here tonight because this whole section builds to verses 28 to 35, which is what we will look at tonight. This morning, I want to begin by reading this passage, setting it in front of you. It's a text, no doubt, with which you are very familiar. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can not be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me can not be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king? When he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000, or else while the other is still far away, he, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. These were among the most shocking words to ever come from the lips 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. These words are jarring and jolting. These words are intended by Christ to hit us like a ton of bricks. I mean, what is this? We must hate our father and mother and brother and sister in our home when my wife and I raised our children they were not allowed, my three sons were not allowed to say to their little sister, I hate you. There were a few times they did, and they returned to the dinner table with soap bubbles coming out of their ears. So what is this? Jesus telling us that we must hate our father and mother and brother and sister and, and even our own life? Uh, Here, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, says that we must hate those whom we love the most. These are strong words. I'm not going to in any way spray perfume on these words. I'm not going to neuter these words. I'm not going to water them down. They are what they are, and Jesus intentionally said this with a very sharp edge. They are intended to arrest us. They are intended to to literally capture our soul. What Jesus is demanding is that we love Him more than anyone or anything in this world, or you cannot be His follower. You're going to have to get another line, to get in another line. Because those who are following Christ must be those who are sold out completely. Supreme affection, highest allegiance given to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords, and everything else in life is a distant secondary. The key word in these verses that I just read is the last word in verse 26, It is the last word in verse 27. It is also found in verse 33. It is the word disciple. The word disciple means a student, a learner, but also a follower of their teacher. And to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means you have brought your life into a position of submission under His Lordship, and His words are binding upon your conscience and upon your life, and you are are devoted not only to, to learn from Him, to be in the school of discipleship, but that you are committed to a life of obedience from the heart to pursue Christ. A disciple here is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, where Christ is primary and everything and everyone else is secondary. So this morning, as we're looking at these verses, I I want to look at the first three verses this morning, the rest tonight. But I want to begin in verse 25. I want you to note the crowds. That's what leaps off the page In, in verse 25, the crowds. Because we see that large crowds were following 
Jesus. Verse 25 begins with these three words, now large crowds. These were huge, massive, swelling multitudes of people who are just pouring out of villages and and hamlets and and towns to, to come in behind the Lord Jesus Christ. Enormous throngs of people. And Jesus, in reality, was a traveling evangelist. He was not a pastor in one congregation in one place. He he was on the move. He was constantly traveling from city to city and preaching the gospel. He says here, large crowds. Please note, not just crowds singular. It wasn't just a crowd. It's crowds plural. And not just crowds plural. It's large crowds, mega crowds. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people are coming in behind Jesus, and they are attracted as He moved from city to city and creating a sensation. They are attracted by what they hear and what they see. Never has a man spoken like this before, and He is healing the sick, and they are seeing before their very eyes God incarnate. So, who was in this crowd? If there's hundreds and probably thousands, who's in this crowd? Well, we know the committed, first of all, are in this crowd. We know 11 of the 12 disciples are are committed. They've left their nets. They have left their farms. They they have left their tax booth. They've left it all all behind, and they, they are following Christ, and they are genuine believers in Christ, and no doubt there are others like that. Uh, There are the curious. Uh, There's there's always the curious whenever there's a crowd. I mean, no one wants to eat in a restaurant when no one's there. I mean, you want to be where other people are. You want to go to a football game when the stadium is packed out, and, and the large crowd just attracts more of a crowd. And no doubt, there was a sensation here of, of people wanting to be where people are. Not certain why. Um, there were also in this crowd the confused, those who had been caught up in the false religion of apostate Judaism that you would have to have a works righteousness and, and work for your salvation and merit and deserve the, uh, the righteousness that only God can give, and totally confused about the way of salvation. Certainly, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were a part of that down in Jerusalem. And there were also the counterfeit. Judas would be at the head of that list. He was there that day. Those who thought simply by being in the crowd and being near Jesus and just hearing Jesus and just seeing what he does would put them in right standing with with God. There were the counterfeit disciples, those who were religious but lost. And what is so tragic is they don't know that they're lost. They, They are just drawn like the moth to the flame. They're just drawn to where the Word is being taught and where other believers are gathered and where there's a crowd but there is not the reality of the new birth in their soul and in their heart. This is the mixed crowd that's following Jesus. 
And I have to say how easy it is to be a part of a large crowd like this. Uh, The larger the crowd, the larger the religious crowd, the easier it is to remain anonymous. And the easier it is just to blend in and, and not to be exposed. It's easier to look good and sound religious in a large crowd and just go with the flow. And yet, within the heart and with the will not to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so much easier just to be a a face in the crowd. And that's what's going on here. And Jesus knew it. And so look at verse 25. Large crowds were going along. And let me just stress this. They were just going along. You, you, You can almost hear the kind of the easy believism in that. They were just like logs drifting downstream, going with the current. They're just going along. And Jesus turned. He he just stopped in his tracks and did a 180, and he turned around, and he faced this massive multitude that were swelling by the, the moment And Jesus, it says, spoke to them. He spoke directly to them because Jesus will not have people just going along. Jesus was never looking for a crowd. It would be a crowd one day that would crucify him. Jesus was looking for a congregation, not a crowd. And Jesus addressed them with words that were shocking, that were startling. No doubt the disciples who were with the Lord thought, well, wow, now our ministry has really taken off. Now we're really going somewhere. But Jesus saw the crowd in a totally different way. And Jesus stopped and turned around and said to them. And the Jesus who spoke to the crowd that day long ago is the Jesus who speaks to this crowd here today. And the Jesus who spoke with audible words 2,000 years ago is the Jesus who is speaking to this congregation through this written word, and He is speaking directly and personally to each and every one of us here today as if we are the only one in the building. He is speaking to you this very moment. And he who has ears to hear must hear. I want you to know, second, not only the crowds in verse 25, but the call at the beginning of verse 26. Now, here is the open invitation that Jesus extends to the crowd. Notice the beginning of verse 26, the first five words. If anyone comes to me. Please please note how open this invitation is. It, It is as open as all those who heard him speak these words. With these words, Jesus is swinging open the gates of paradise. And this is synonymous with saying, Whosoever 
This is the free offer of the gospel that is being extended to this massive crowd. If anyone, whatever your name, whatever your age, whatever your background, whatever your gender, whatever your place in society, whether you're religious or not religious, whether you're going through prosperity or adversity, no matter who you are, from whence you have come, if anyone, he says, comes to me. To come to Christ is synonymous with saving faith. To come to Christ means to take steps of faith from where you are in the kingdom of darkness, from where you are in the world system, and to turn your back to a life pursuit of sin and to take a step of faith and come all the way to Christ. When Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, he he did not mean for them with their feet to walk to him. They were already walking with their feet to him. And there was a deeper spiritual meaning. When he says, if anyone comes to me, he, he is inviting them in their soul and in their heart to leave behind where they have been living in the world and now identify with Him and come to Him by faith. And Jesus would say in John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He he who believes in me will never hunger, and he who comes to me will never thirst. In that verse, to believe in Christ and to come to Christ are synonymous parallel statements. And in John 7, verse 37, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And please note, he says, if anyone comes to me, come to me personally, to come to me directly, not come to religion, not come to a meeting, not come to a service. I mean, that's fine and good in its place, but to come to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is inviting that entire multitude of people who were following Him physically to come to Him spiritually. This call is just as open and just as extended here today. As His Word is being taught, this invitation to come to Christ is being extended to you this very moment, to come to Christ and how, how loving of Christ, how open-hearted of Christ, how large-hearted of Christ. I, I know of some golf clubs, meaning golf courses, it's, it's not open to everybody. I mean, you have to be a special somebody. In fact, you can't even ask to be asked. Yeah, you have to wait, and it only goes to a, a, a select few uh, I, I was lecturing last week at the Master's Seminary with, with Michael Reeves from Oxford, and he's a member of a very exclusive club in downtown or in the St. James area of, of London, and 
It's where Winston Churchill was a member. And they have a very exclusive tie, and only the members of this club get to wear this snooty little tie. That's not how the kingdom of God operates. It's it's this invitation goes out as far and as wide as the word of God is proclaimed around the world. And this invitation has gone out to you and is going out to you yet one more time this very moment. But I want you to note third, the condition. Because as we look into verse 26, there's there's actually a condition here. A, A condition to respond to the call. Now, the call is, is open and wide, but the one who issues the call sets the terms, and that's Jesus. And so, in order to answer the call, Jesus gives some very specific conditions here, and they're jolting, and they are very strong words. Jesus is not trying to beat the drum and just grow the ministry numerically. Jesus was never after quantity. He was always after quality. And this is the kind of follower Jesus demanded. If anyone comes to me, verse 26, and does not, let me just pause there for a moment. Do you see how negative Jesus is stating this? He is putting this in the negative because he's intending it to have a sharp edge, for it to prick our conscience and poke our, into our ribcage. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, that, that word leaps off the page. And does not hate his own father and mother, those closest earthly relationships, those who literally brought you into this world and nurtured you and cared for you and and raised you and gave their soul for you. And then he says, and does not hate his own wife. The love of your life and children, that those whom you cherish and, and all but adore, and brothers and sisters, those that you grew up with, those that you shared a bedroom with, those that you played with, those that you, that you worked with. Jesus said, if you don't hate them, you cannot be my disciple. And how are we to take this? Does not the fifth commandment, Exodus 20 and verse 12, say, honor your father and mother? It's the first commandment with a promise. It's the bridge from the first four to the the final six. It's the most critical earthly relationship that you would honor your father and your mother. And did not Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that we are to love even our enemies? Does not your heavenly Father love even His enemies and cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust? 
And did not Jesus, when he was hanging upon the cross in John chapter 19, with all but his last dying breath, look down from the cross and with his final bit of business say to his mother, mother, behold your son, looking at John the apostle, that his mother would be taken care of even after his death. And son, behold your mother, and was just the matchmaker almost, bringing the two together. To the very end, he's loving his mother. And did not Paul say in 1 Timothy 5, if a man does not take care of his own household, he is worse than an infidel? You take care of your house first, and then take care of others. So what are we to take of, take of this? Because we are those who believe the Bible. Well, the answer is in the passage that was read earlier in the service. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 10, I think it would be worth your turning there for just the moment. And in Matthew chapter 10, in verse 37, we have the answer by allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said, as only a diamond is sharp enough to cut another diamond, so only Scripture is sharp enough to interpret Scripture. And so here we lay side by side parallel passages, yet stated in slightly different words. In Matthew 10, verse 37, here is the key that unlocks the door. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now light bulbs come on. Now we can see as the light of Matthew 10 shines onto the text of Luke chapter 14, we see it clearly that Jesus is using a figure of speech known as hyperbole where you deliberately overstate something with exaggeration so as to have impact into the ear of the listener. And boy, does he get our attention with these words because they still hit us like a ton of bricks. What Jesus means in Luke 14 is not that we hate our father and mother and brother and sister, but that by comparison, the love that we have for Jesus Christ is so primary and so paramount and is so exceedingly great that the love that we have for Jesus Christ would make the love that we have for our own loved ones appear to be as hate. And the fact of the matter is, the more you love Jesus Christ, the more you're going to love your father and your mother. And the more you love Jesus Christ, the more you're going to love your wife and give yourself to her as Christ gave himself to the church. And the more you love Christ, the more you're going to love your children. And the more you're going to love your brother and your sister, even when they're difficult to love, because your love for Christ is so flooding into your heart and to your soul that it is spilling over in your relationships with others. So what Jesus is calling for here in verse 26 
is supreme devotion and unrivaled allegiance to Him. He must be number one. He will not ride in anyone's back seat. He must be number one. And not just one on a list, one in your heart. That He is your chief affection, that you adore Him, you worship Him, you you love Him. That that your, your heart is pounding and beating with affection for Him. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. But now Jesus goes for the juggler. He goes for the juggler vein. Rather than backing off, he now plunges the knife deeper. Sometimes when I'm preaching, my wife will sit on the front row, and and I get pretty worked up and animated, and she'll give me what we call the look. And, and the, the look means settle down. You're, 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 you're coming on too strong with everybody. Jesus doesn't back down at this point. He actually raises the ante. He actually becomes more aggressive. And he says at the end of verse 26, yes... As if saying amen to what he has already just said. He just amened his own sermon. Yes. You can tweet that if you want. Yes, and even his own life. Or he cannot. He cannot. He cannot be my disciple. Now, you know the difference between may and can. There's a difference between may not and cannot. May is a word of permission. Can is a word of ability. Oh, you got permission if you want to come, but you do not have the ability to come until you meet these conditions. Now, what does this mean? Hate even his own life. In other words, you cannot love your little universe and your little life and what you have going on and what you're about, your schedule, your activities, your circles of relationships more than you love me. Self dies hard. What does self-love look like? Self-centeredness? Self-preoccupation? Self-flattery? Self-indulgence? Self-promotion? Self-pampering? Self-pity? Self-ease? Self-pleasures, self-exaltation, self-esteem. Self-love is being self-absorbed. It's being self-consumed. It's being self-focused. It's being self-fixed. 
If we are to live for Jesus Christ and to follow Him, Jesus is saying we cannot live for ourselves. We have to live for Him. And self must die. And to be a true believer in Jesus Christ, at the very heart, when you peel back the layers of authentic, spirit-generated, saving faith, there is a strong heartbeat, a strong pulse of love and devotion and affection for the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.8 says, though you do not see Him, you love Him. And Romans 8 verse 28 says, those who love God, those are the ones who are called according to His purpose. In Ephesians 6 and verse 24, it says, those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love that is incorruptible, those are the true believers. So I have to ask you at this point, do you love God? Do you love Christ? Do you have a heart affection for Christ? Is He your supreme object of the devotion of your heart and soul? Because to be a true follower of Christ, this is what He commands, and this is what He requires. But all we have to do is to behold His glory. All we have to do is to to see who He is and to know what He has done for us and to see what He is doing this very moment. And the more that we see Him, as Piper would say, the more we savor Him. The more we look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, the more our heart is, is enlarged. And when we don't love Him as we should, it's because of other distractions that have drawn our focus to other things, whether it's a crisis or whether it's circumstances. That's when our heart diminishes, like at the church at Ephesus, Ephesians, uh, Revelation 2, verse 4. But I have this against you, you have left your first love. It's because they had taken their eyes off of Christ and were just into the activities of everything. And so what what Jesus is saying at the very heart, when you put your finger on the the vital nerve of a true believer, there is a pulse of love for Jesus Christ. Now, fourth and finally, I want you to note the cross in verse 27. The cross. Because Jesus now makes one of the most demanding statements to ever come from His lips. And I want to say it again. Rather than backing off and now saying something kind of warm and fuzzy to to draw everyone back in, Jesus now aggressively, I mean, Dominic, he goes into full court press. I mean, he amps it up. I mean, he goes into two-minute offense here at the end, Bo. Notice what he says in verse 27. Whoever, that parallels with anyone in verse 26, whoever, and again, it's this open invitation, but he says, whoever does not. He keeps putting this in the negative. In order, it's almost like thumping our forehead to get our attention. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me. Now, please note, 
to come to Christ is inseparably connected with coming after Christ. Everyone who comes to Christ genuinely will come after Christ progressively. In other words, for those of you who know theology, justification and sanctification are inseparably bound together. Everyone who is justified is immediately sanctified and begins this lifelong pursuit of growing into the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, to use a different metaphor from Matthew chapter 7, the narrow gate can only lead down the narrow path. You cannot go through the narrow gate and then walk the broad path. No, it's a narrow gate that leads to a narrow path. It's a broad gate that leads to a broad path. You can't mix and match the two. So if you want to know which gate you went through, all I have to do is ask you, which path are you on? Because which path you are on will answer the question, which gate you went through. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 27, I don't want you to miss the, the, the impact of this, is that those who come to Christ in verse 26 will come after Christ in verse 27. In other words, no one can just parrot a prayer and sign a card and join a church and then live like the devil. No, if you have genuinely come to Christ, you have just now started the journey of following after Christ. But what does this mean to carry your own cross? And this will be our final thoughts, because I actually have never seen someone carry a cross. That's not something we do in America in the 21st century. What does this mean? Of course, we have to go back in time, 2,000 years, to really understand the significance of these words. And the fact is, no one in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago would mistake what Jesus meant by this. They had seen it again and again and again, and it was a sight that they would never forget. If you ever saw it once, you would remember it the rest of your life. A cross was an instrument of death, a savage death, a severe death. The cross was the form of capital punishment. It was the electric chair of the first century. It was the gas chamber of the first century. It, 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 was, a, it, it was a despicable form of public capital punishment that was so heinous, no Roman citizen could be subjected to death by crucifixion on a cross. And when someone would carry their cross, it was because they have stood in the court of law before the judge, just like Jesus stood before Pilate, and when they are condemned to death, they are sentenced to death by crucifixion, perhaps on the other side of town. And you would leave the, the, the judge's room and you would be given a cross beam to put on your back, and you would now be forced to carry the cross beam all the way to the site of execution. And the whole town would turn out, and they would line the streets as though it were a parade. 
because it was intended to be public. It was intended to make a statement by Rome. Only Rome could issue this death penalty. Uh, uh, Israel under Pax Romana could not issue this this, uh, crucifixion. And Rome intended to make statements that you rise up against our authority. This is what it will mean. We want everyone to see this lonely figure carrying his cross to the execution site. And what it meant was you are a condemned man. You have been been judged in the court. The evidence has been presented. You have been found wanting. There is now the death sentence upon your head, and you are a dead man walking. It is as though you are already dead. It was the ultimate humiliation. It was the dreaded death march. And in Jerusalem, it was down the Via Della Rosa. And Jesus now stops and turns to these wannabe followers with some true followers and says to them something that must have gone through them like an electrical shock. That if anyone, whoever does not carry his own cross, he's not talk, Jesus is not talking about his cross. He hasn't even been crucified yet. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, and Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, and Jesus will be condemned in six trials, three Jewish and three Roman, and Jesus will be forced to carry his cross and will buckle under the weight, and a man named Cyrus, Simon will pick up the cross, but go to Golgotha and go to Calvary, and there Jesus will be nailed to the cross beam and nailed to the vertical beam and be hoisted up, separated from God and the earth and from men, and there to die that ignominious death in our place. But Jesus says, if you're going to be one of my disciples, you're going to have to carry your cross and die to self and die to this world and die to the applause of this world and the approval of this world and live for amens out of heaven and come after me as I am headed to the very same destination. To come after Christ means that we go where He leads us, that we live as He requires, that we speak what He teaches, that we live as He lived, that we love what He loves, that we hate what He hates, that we walk as He walked, that we believe as He believed. And Jesus was saying, spiritually speaking, those who would follow him, and this begins with me and it extends to you and it extends to every single person around the world in every generation, on every continent, in every place, that we must die to self. And we must submit, submit 
to His supreme authority, and we must agree with God's verdict upon our own lives that we have been weighed in the balances and our lives fall short of the glory of God. It's a sobering invitation, a soul-chilling invitation that Jesus gave, but for those who accept it and who respond, it is a soul uplifting, it is a soul gratifying, it is a soul that is filled with 10,000 joys and charms because we gain far more than we ever give up. I mean, really, why would we hang on to our crummy little life? I mean, really, what is it amounted to in our flesh? In order now to be a follower of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to be a follower of the second person of of the Trinity, to be a follower now of Him who is the Alpha and the Omega. What a the greatest privilege any of us will ever know, the greatest adventure we will ever know, the greatest life that we will ever know. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The last thing I want to stress is the very end of verse 27. He says, and come after me. Again, the emphasis is on the person of Christ. It's not on an institution. It's not on a movement. It's not on a cause, but it is to the person of Christ. Now, if we will follow the person of Christ, He will put you in the church, and He will put you in ministry, and He will put you in, in, in the greatest movement this world's ever known, the, the movement of the kingdom of God. But to, to enter into the kingdom, we have to be a follower of Christ. Christianity is Christ. Christianity is to know Christ. It is to believe in Christ. It is to trust Christ. It is to worship Christ. It is to adore Christ. It is to treasure Christ. It is to serve Christ. It is to follow Christ. It is to obey Christ. It is to submit to Christ. It is to, my whole life is Christ. I don't even have a life outside of Christ. In Philippians 1 verse 21, Paul said, for me to live is It's Christ. That's it. And then to die is gain. Why? Because I go be with Christ. And to live for anyone or anything else other than for Christ, to die is loss. To die is eternal loss. But to live for Christ in this life is to live for that which leads us into the very presence of God. I want to be very clear from this text that Jesus will not follow us. We must follow Him. He will not follow our agenda. We follow His agenda. He will not get on our path. We follow on His path. And as we follow Him, He does not tell us where this is going. It's a walk of faith. He holds the future. He knows the way. He shows the way. More than that, He goes the way with us. If we were applying for a job and then consulted with our parents, I know my father would want to know, so what does this mean in five years? Where would this put you with the company in ten years? 
What, what, are, the, what, are, the, what are the benefits? What, what's the retirement? What, 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 what is the health insurance? What, what all comes with this? And Jesus is saying, you just trust me. You just follow me. I know where this is going. And I don't want to be mistaken, you need insurance, okay? And you need to have a plan. But even with our plans, he overrides for his plans. We just heard about that in the testimony earlier in this service. A young man going to Southern Seminary. God knows what's best. So we must follow Christ. We must follow him personally. No one else can follow Christ for you. Your spouse cannot follow Christ for you. Your parents cannot follow Christ for you. You personally must follow Christ. You must follow him wholeheartedly. Uh, You you cannot follow him half-hearted. He is saying to this crowd, it is all or nothing. We have to be all in with Christ. We have to follow him repentantly, meaning we turn our back to the world. We turn our back to our former manner of life. We must follow him obediently. We come under the authority of his word. We must follow him openly. He who is ashamed of me before this sinful and adulterous generation, the same will I be ashamed of when I come into the glory of my Father with the holy angels. We have to follow him openly before the world. We have to follow him comprehensively. Uh, There's no part of my life that is segmented away and not a part of following Christ. Every step of my life's journey is following Christ, whether it's my home life, my ministry life, my work life, my recreational life. It's all in the package of following Christ. We must follow Christ exclusively. We cannot follow Jesus and anything else and anyone else. It's all Christ, solus Christos. And we must follow Him unconditionally. We must be willing to go wherever He sends us. We must be willing to go anywhere, do anything, pay any price in following Christ. We must follow Him immediately. Not tomorrow. Not next week. We must follow Him now, today. And we must follow Him permanently. It's not a weekend journey. It's now until the end of our life, every moment of every day for the rest of our lives, there is no turning back. We have burned our bridges behind us. We cannot go back to where we once were and what what we once did. That's over. That's buried. That old man has been buried. We now move forward by faith, and we follow Christ And Jesus ends verse 27 and says, or you cannot be my disciple. With Jesus, there's no fine print in the contract. He puts it all out for the hundreds and the thousands to see and to read, and he is still speaking clearly to us today that we just can't go with the flow of the crowd. We have to break from the pack. 
We have to break from the world. We have to break from the culture. And we have to follow Christ. And this is non-negotiable. This is obligatory. This is mandatory. But whatever the sacrifice to follow Christ, I want to say it again. We gain far more than we ever give up. We give up our guilt for His grace. We give up our sins for His salvation. We give up our emptiness for His fullness. We give up our world for His world. We give up our spiritual bankruptcy for His vast riches. We give up our dirt for His diamonds. That sounds like a good deal to me. This is buy low, sell high. And the height will take you all the way to the heights of heaven. But in order to follow him, a blind man could see it. A deaf man could hear this. There's no room for any misunderstanding. It doesn't take much of a person to be a follower of Christ. It just takes all there is of them. Give your all to him. And he will take it and remold it and use it for his glory. I wish I had a thousand lives. I'd give every one of them to Christ. And I'd follow him with every single one of those lives.